Hi everyone, welcome to the Dance Science Podcast. I'm your host, the Dance Scientist, and the Dance Science Podcast intends to build connections and drive discussion on how we can improve our field and make dance science more normalized. Thank you for being here and please enjoy this episode. Hi everyone, thank you so much for being here with me today. I'm your host, The Dance Scientist, and today's episode, we're going to have our eighth guest speaker, which is kind of insane to say. This is Jennifer Milner, who is a movement specialist. I'm so happy to have Jennifer on with us today. Hello, I'm really happy to be here and to be able to chat with you. Yes, so if you did not know, Jennifer and I have known each other since... Probably I Adams. Was that Montreal? Montreal, yeah, Montreal. 2019. So that was in 2019. So we have known mm-hmm. each other for a few years, but it's nice to reconnect again. So this is going to be a great conversation. Yep. So the first thing, can you just tell us a little bit about your journey into becoming a movement specialist? Well, I started as a dancer, which a lot of us do. Um, and I worked as a professional ballet dancer and then a professional uh, Broadway dancer. And along the way, dealt with a lot of injuries. Mm. Um, nothing, you know, career ending until there was one that was career ending. Mm. Um, but during that journey, I started taking Pilates, sort of try to um, help me stay strong and deal with some of my issues and found that I really loved it. And while I was dealing with what turned out to be my career ending industry or injury, I, um, I got certified to teach Pilates just as something to do to kind of keep me going. And once I got certified and it became clear I wasn't going to dance again, I was offered a job working at uh, Westside Dance Physical Therapy, um, which is, you know, the home of the great Marika Molnar, the mother of dance medicine. And um, she mentored me. I was really fortunate, mentored me there for several years and um, had me work with the dancers sort of in a transitionary way, like in addition to physical therapy or once physical therapy was finished. And it was a really great fit for me and a really natural fit um, and a way for me to use my dance training and use the knowledge I had gained with a lot of the injuries that I had had to help dancers. Um, and then I just kind of grew from there, took as many classes as I could, got as many specialties as I could, uh, ended up moving back to Dallas where I was from to raise my family and um, just have continued to go from there. So now I do um, Pilates-based conditioning, uh, and I do um, ballet coaching and sort of picking apart dance and applying dance science to it and then putting it back together as you know a healthier and more efficient way of doing things. And that's, that's really what I'm passionate about now. I really love it. So it basically started out of a need for you, right? You said you had mm-hmm. a career-ending injury, and that's when things mm-hmm. kind of turned for you, and you turned to Pilates, you were saying? Yes. So how did yes. Pilates help you? Pilates was really great for me. It was first recommended to me by a doctor when I was in a car accident. I didn't have to stop dancing, but I had to deal with, I'm hypermobile, and I had to deal with the effects of that on my hypermobile spine. Mm-hmm. And they recommended Pilates, and when I started working with the Pilates teacher, um, I was almost insulted by how basic she took everything. And I was like, I'm a dancer. I can do this. But then when I tried to do it right, I was like, oh, dang, <laughs> I can't do this. Um, and that was the first time that somebody was like, you are an amazing athlete. And also there are some issues that need to be addressed. And discovering those issues in myself 
um, made me a better dancer and made me stronger. I ended up doing Pilates twice a week for the rest of my career, um, going from there to the theater. And it was just a really lovely thing for my body to help that that dance and dance classes weren't doing. And this was before conditioning was like a thing, you know, I mean, it was conditioning existed, but it certainly wasn't as standard as it is now. So people were like, I can't believe you're spending this time doing it, but it was, it was super helpful for me um, and made me aware of how many, um, how many issues there can be even within dance, right. Whether it's ballet or contemporary or West African, the repetitive movements, are not equal to all parts of the body. Right. And so that was kind of an eye-opener for me, and I've just kept kept doing it since then. Right, so it's important for us to balance the body as much as we can, right? Absolutely, yes. And again, yes. Yeah, and, and I learned just, just doing shows, if you're doing eight shows a week of certain choreography, mm. um, well, you know, one side might do a lot of this movement and the other side might do a lot of this movement. The choreography is not 100% equal. Right. So some of my journey as a professional dancer was just trying to keep the two sides of my body balanced and trying to unwind one side or tighten up another side yeah. just to try to undo the, the asymmetrical effects of choreography, the same choreography all the time. Yeah. Pilates was also my doorway into the dance science world. So I can definitely mm-hmm. relate yeah, into how it makes us feel. So through your specialization in becoming a movement specialist, how do you see this contributing to the big picture of progressing dance science? Um, I think that there has, there has long been a separation between dance and science Mm. or artists and athletes. And I think that within the past 10, 15 years, we've started to merge those two Mm and realize that you can't be a dance artist without being an athlete. And you can't be a dance athlete without also being an artist. Those two things have to be intertwined. And where where I find my passion is helping people bridge that gap. And I see the same thing with you. You are super passionate about taking traditional dance pedagogy and forcing us to look at hard questions and be like, but why is it like this? Why do we talk about that? Why is it not okay? You know. And I think that I think that my job is to say, okay, so we have to do this to our bodies if we are going to be working on entrecies, right? Big fast jumps. What can we do athletically to make those better and prettier? So you're not cheating and your knees aren't falling in and you're not straining your hips or this or that. So finding a way to do the dysfunctional movement that we're doing as functionally as possible. Right. Right. And and that's where I see what I do. Um sort of bridging that gap between the science room and the dance room. Right. And, you know, we're really talking like long-term things that you're doing mm-hmm. here as a movement specialist. Cause I say this t- sometimes it's not just like short-term helping them get the pirouette in six weeks or something. It's also like long-term for them as just humans, right? Mm-hmm. Just living Absolutely. a human life. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, and I have like a um, professional dancer who's in her late twenties And we are unwinding issues that she's had for two years. And if you have a little bit of a scoliosis or something of a bunion, you know, those things start to affect your whole body. And she's a beautiful dancer and she's performing at a high level with a great company. And yet we want her to be able to continue dancing for another 10, 20 years. Mm -hmm. So we have to unwind those little things that just start to accumulate within your technique and within your body. Mm -hmm. 
So one thing that's kind of popping up for me is, do you find yourself going back to a lot of like basics, like basic exercise? Of yes. <laughs> yes, yes. I feel like There's I have this. to reteach the plie, the tendu, yeah. and the releve yeah. over and over and over again. And you know, I read. I mean, if you if you follow me on Instagram, you see some of the work I'm doing is super boring. Here's Just how you releve. Yeah. Here's how you plie. Right. Yeah. But the things that we think we know we 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 don't pay the attention to that we should mm. and so when we slow it down and really dig into it and and most of the work i do is privates mm -hmm. all of a sudden there are those light bulb moments where your jumps are higher because you deal with that plie or your calves don't hurt as much because we figure out how to land from a releve or whatever the case is yeah it's all about going yeah. back to the basics i think there's a misconception when people see like advanced dancers doing like a basic exercise it's like well why that why do they need to do that basic exercise and it's like well they need they need it yeah <laughs> even the most yeah they do dancers. there's no way that we can do um a big fat a big fat like grand jeté or uh grand jeté entrelace or something like that without having a really great plie you know we can't have those big juicy moves without a nice juicy controlled strong plie no so a strong foundation yeah yep totally agree so what advice would you give a student who's interested in pursuing your specific field because you know i really think it's important for us to be mentoring our students as much as we can in this way mm -hmm. um i agree with that and one of the things that I do with all of my dancers, uh, you know, when you're working on one-on-one -on -one with a dancer, especially if you're not in the ballet studio, but also in the ballet studio, but if you're doing some sort of cross-training or conditioning um, or physical therapy work, you begin to have a lot of conversations. Like there is a lot, there are a lot of deep conversations that go on while you're doing this work. So we have these, these discussions while we're working out. And I ask a lot of my dancers, if dance didn't exist, what would make you happy? What would you want to be doing right now? Mm -hmm. Not saying you're never going to get back to dancing or this or that, right. but it's true that you will stop dancing at some point. You might be 90, but at some point you will stop dancing. Mm -hmm. And so just opening up the mind to what other things make me happy and what are things fulfill me. And once they start thinking along those paths, I want them to think about what, what is wrong or what was wrong when you were younger, if you're older now, with the dance world. And Josephine Lee talks about how we become the person that we needed when we were 12. Yep. And That's so awesome. I encourage my dancers to think, who do you wish you had in your life when you were 12? Mm. If it's outside the dance world, great, go pursue that. But if it's in the dance world, did you wish you had a nutritionist, a therapist? Mm. Did you wish you had a, a physical therapist that could address these things for you? And so um, the people who end up pursuing my path are the ones that feel very strongly about sort of all the things. They want to be a, um, an emotionally encouraging presence mm -hmm. in dancers' lives, but they also want to be that presence in the dance studio and not just as a counselor or a, ther a therapist. Um, and some of them want to go on to become physical therapists who we also know are the front line for mental health for dancers. Um, but some of them want to go on and do what I do and do a little bit of a classroom, a little bit of cross training, sort of finding that space. And for them, I say, do what you love, start to pursue the things that you love to pursue. If you get super interested in neuroscience, go for it and God bless and do some great research and show us things that are going to help us make better dancers. Yeah. If you get super interested in injuries, pursue that. If you want to do something like I did, I just pursued I thought this class sounded interesting and that class sounded interesting and they all sort of piled up to be who I am today. Mm. So I say pursue 
what you think would help that 12 year old self. And another way to look at it is not, not do what you love, but, but what makes you angry and go out there and do something about it. Right. So the things that make me angry are the way people are treated emotionally in dance, the way they feel so lonely and isolated, the way their careers are cut so short because things don't get fixed in time. Those make me angry. And so I go out there and do something about it. Yeah. And you know, most of these conversations that I've had with other dance medicine professionals is like, a similar story as you and I is like the reason why we're doing what we're doing today is because some of this stuff was missing in our lives as young dancers, right? Mm -hmm. That's why we're where we are today. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. So what have you learned? This kind of ties into what we were talking about here is, is there something that you've learned that you wish you knew as a young dancer? Um, I mean, I wish there was a lot that I had known as a young dancer uh, I think one of the things that held me back the most was my fear of being seen as less than perfect. Wow. And, um, you know, a very concrete example is that I would never work on my forte turns. And I have such a vivid memory from when I was 14. And one of my friends was like, let's stay after every day and work on fortes. And I was like, no, because I didn't want to see how bad my turns were. Mm. And at the end of a, a month or two, she had great forte turns. And I eventually got them to where they were fine, but they were never great. Um, and I would rather not be good at something than to have people see that I wasn't good at something and, and to gradually improve. So I would encourage people not to be afraid of being messy yes. and being less than perfect. And yes. if you are, and you, and if, if people make you feel bad about that, then I would find a different environment. Yeah. A class should be a safe space for you to try stuff and you try should. big and fail big yes. and then try something else. Yeah. So the first thing is... Um, not to have no fear, right? We all have fear, but to to not have a fear of being messy and failing, or if you do, to try to push through that. Um, and the second thing is that I often went into an audition thinking that I should come across as like a blank slate for the choreographer or the director to see and be like, that's a beautiful blank slate. I'm going to paint my picture on it now. And I thought I needed to not show my personality. You know, there are certain famous choreographers from the 20th century that were like, you're a canvas, I paint on you. Mm -hmm. And I think it's so much more important to show who you are that's unique mm -hmm. and who you are as an artist and what's authentic about you because mm -hmm. nobody brings what you have to the table. Exactly. Um, and I wish that I had realized that because the older I got and the, the higher up in my career I got, the more comfortable in my own skin I was on stage. Mm -hmm. And the more comfortable I was saying, eh, that role's not right for me, but here's who I am and this would be really good for this. Mm -hmm. So don't be afraid of being messy and, and don't be afraid of being authentic and showing who you are. Don't try to be Tyler Peck. There already is a Tyler Peck. She's great. But that. she can't do some of the things that you do in the ways that you do them. She doesn't bring your life experience. Mm -hmm. So th that would be my biggest two pieces of advice. I really love the thing that you were saying about not being afraid of being messy because again i think this is something that's especially common in ballet where they're afraid to make those mistakes but you know we know that the mistakes are actually important mm -hmm. and then they are this concept kind of solidified when i did my uh, ces certification through nasm they were saying and they pointed out a research study that showed this that people who like if there's a movement pattern that somebody's fearful of, they're going to naturally like avoid it. Mm -hmm. And so this is like really a concept that we avoid the things that we're fearful of. So it's just a really interesting conversation. And again, especially prominent in ballet where there's a lot of the perfectionism and 
a lot of mirrors and a lot of, you know, looking at what they look like and yeah. Yeah. Well, even when a teacher gives a correction, if a teacher gives a group correction in class, like say we're in the center and a teacher is talking about adagio to everyone and they give a correction, the student is going to practice that correction on their good side. Mm. They are going to say, my right leg goes higher. So I'm going to practice this correction on my right side. So I look better. So they will see me and go, yes, good. That's it. Nobody wants to practice it on okay. their less strong side, yes. right? <laughs> Everybody has a side that's not quite as coordinated, the, the, the extension isn't as high, whatever. So if we're always kicking to the right, our left is just going to be comparatively worse and worse and worse and worse. Yeah. So don't be afraid to look messy and try the other side too. <laughs> yeah. I've called the, the sides now. Love is like your dominant side and extra love is your less dominant side because it nice. needs extra love. <laughs> nice. Because it needs extra love. That's right. It doesn't want you to ignore it. You cannot no. ignore it. You can't ignore it. If you ignore it, it's going to keep going like this. Yeah, there's going to be such yeah. a huge disparity between the two sides. Yeah. And when I teach class, I'll often have everybody start on the left side yeah. instead of starting with their right side all the time. We always start on the left if I'm is. doing class and it blows their minds, but so good for them. See, this is a simple way of us taking, you know, traditional ballet pedagogy and mixing in some of these more modern principles, right? Mm -hmm. And it doesn't mean that we have to, and it's not a way of like disrespecting the art form, right? Because I get that pushback sometimes that it's like disrespecting where the art form came from. And I just really want people to understand that what we're trying to do here is to find a blend between the two, which is something that you said earlier, right? We're trying to find Mm -hmm. a blend. We're not taking either of them away because they both need each other at the end of the day, the art and the science. Mm -hmm. Well, and there's a difference between tradition and habit. And I feel like there are some really amazing traditions that we can honor and uphold, right? But some things, like always starting on the right, are habit. And there's no, well, Louis XIV said we should all, you know. So there there are some traditions that obviously we should get rid of because they were mired in misogyny or Western privilege or a whole bunch of different things. But there are some things that are just habit. And if they're habit, let's, why? Let's reconsider them and say, let's try something else, you know? And it's okay for us. To make and it's okay. Changes. Yeah, the we're still making okay. beautiful ballerinas. Right. Love this. Loving this conversation. <laughs> so we'll be talking about this a little bit more in part two. But where can people start to learn more about you, and how can they access your resources? So, um, you can learn about me. My website is www.jennifer-milner.com. Milner is M-I-L-N-E-R, and Instagram is Jennifer Period Milner. Um, so you can find me at either one of those places. You can submit a request for uh, information or to talk with me I, on either of those platforms as well. Awesome. So as a wrap up to part one, if you just had to give one tidbit of wisdom to our audience today, what would that be? Wow. One tidbit of wisdom from what we've been talking about here. Um, don't let your fear rule who you are as a dancer, whether it's your fear of failing, your fear of looking imperfect, uh, your fear of not being good enough, your fear of upsetting the pedagogy, tradition, whatever it is, don't let your fear rule you. I'm not saying ignore it. It's hard to ignore our fears, but don't let it rule what you do. Yeah, I like that you say that, you know, fear, because it is a natural human emotion that we can't necessarily just get rid of. Yeah. Yeah, you can't really just flip the switch right? Yeah. 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 It's complex. Yeah. Yes. Awesome. So this is part one and we will see you guys in part two. 
All right, everyone, we're moving into part two. We're going to be talking a little bit more specifically about what she does as a movement specialist. So first, tell us about what you do as a movement specialist. I know we talked a little bit about this in part one, but maybe you can talk about the companies that you're currently working with. Sure. So I, I do a few different things. The, the bulk of my everyday time every week is spent doing private lessons with uh, pre-professional and professional dancers. Um, private lessons will be either strength and conditioning based, um, mostly in uh, a Pilates studio, or it'll be on Zoom and we'll do whatever, use whatever props we have on hand on Zoom. Um, or it'll be in the dance studio and I'll either do a, a ballet based class. So we might do a full class or we might do part of a class and then get out some exercises to work on uh, footwork and agility because they're working on petit allegro and then we'll do some petit allegro. Mm -hmm. So my favorite classes kind of blend all of those things together. Mm -hmm. So those are the privates that I do. I also do workshops and I teach at lots of summer intensives. Um, or I'll teach on Zoom for different companies um, if they want me to come in from, you know, a different part of the world. Yeah. Um, and those will be workshops like um, foot and ankle strengthening or um, addressing your arabesque or standing leg strength. A lot of times they'll pick a topic that they want me to address, um, safe stretching. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I also do um, sort of continuing work with a few different companies. Mm -hmm. I'm the co-host for Bendy Bodies, which is a hypermobility podcast for people with hypermobility disorders that we gear towards high-end artists and athletes. So it's dancers, ice skaters, gymnasts, that sort of thing. And there's a very high prevalence of dancers with hypermobility. And so we try to kind of address that and, and every aspect of hypermobility you can think of with that. And I co-host that with Dr. Linda Bluestein, who is the uh, hypermobility MD. Yeah. And then I also serve on the advisory board for Mining the Gap, which is a company that is dedicated to bringing as much attention to mental health support for dancers as there is for physical health support now. Mm -hmm. um, and we put together a lot of Zoom workshops that um, we gear towards dance teachers. We have a, a series coming out in the fall for dance parents. Mm -hmm. um, some of them are series, some of them are one episode deep dives that people take on Zoom that addresses different mental health aspects like how to recognize anxiety in dancers, uh, language that will um, help dancers with eating disorders in the classroom. Um, uh, what does it look like to create a safe space for dancers physically and emotionally? Um, dealing with or addressing social and equality and inclusion and diversity issues in, in the classroom or in the company. So these are the sorts of things that we address with Mining the Gap. And then finally, I do workshops with Dance Medicine Education Initiative, which is run by Andrea Zuko, physical therapist. Mm -hmm. And um, we put together workshops that are for PTs or dance teachers or Pilates trainers that sort of do a deep dive over two days. We did one course on turnout. Uh, this year we did our course on arabesque and next year, I don't know what we'll do, but it'll be amazing. And then I also participate, lastly, in IADAMS, the International Association of Dance Medicine and Science. I've presented for them four or five times, I think, um, and love being a part of them, which is how I met you. Yeah. Uh, I mean, one of my favorite parts is just making this incredible tribe yeah. of dance medicine and science nerds like myself that just feed off of each other and encourage each other and just blow my mind every time we get together. It really is the best. These conversations just light me up. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> the fact me that too. We can, yeah, meet people all over the world who share similar interests, but are also in other fields in dance science too. 
not mm-hmm. all just Pilates teachers in our case. Right, yeah. right. Complementary yes. um, professions as well. Yes. Yeah, yeah, I love it. Yeah. So can you, again, you, you basically just told us about the services that you offer. So now can you tell us about what some of your challenges are? Um, for me, some of the challenges, I'm often the first person that people come to um, that have issues, whether they know they have issues or not. So a lot of times people will come to me saying, oh, my ankle's been bothering me. And I'm like, well, have you been to a physical therapist? No, I don't want to go to a doctor. So I'm very often that front line. I'll be the front line as well for dancers with eating disorders or disordered eating, um, other mental health issues, anxiety, depression, obsessive compulsive issues. And so those start to come out, as I've said before, as we're sitting there talking. Um, and, and I might be, I'm often the front line for other issues that they don't know. Um, I've, I have a dancer currently that I suspect has an autoimmune disorder and nobody's ever brought these things up and connected the dots for her. Um, I'm the first person usually that sees dancers with hypermobility who may have hypermobility disorders like um, EDS or hypermobility spectrum disorder. So the challenge for me is staying in my lane I'm not a medical professional. Um, and at the same time, having a very rich group of people that I can refer out to yeah. that I can trust so much that once I get that fragile trust from the dancers to say, okay, I'll go get an x-ray for my ankle. I know that whoever I send them to is not going to make things worse for them emotionally. They're going to treat them with dignity and respect and like a professional athlete and that sort of thing. So that's a really big challenge for me is is being on that front line in so many ways for dancers and yet staying in my lane and being good at my lane and not trying to do too many things. It is hard sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yes, can be very hard. What is your favorite part of doing this, would you say? Um, it's hugely satisfying. It's hugely satisfying to me to see dancers go back to dancing stronger than they were before, to see them doing things better than they were before. Um, I've been working with one dancer who's a professional and is just trying to level up where she is in her career and where she is with her technique. And we've been working together, um, you know, six, eight hours a week doing private ballet and, and private conditioning. And to see the improvement in her is just, I, I went to go see her perform the lead in a, a, a ballet recently and was just blown away by how much her technique had improved and how much freer she felt and this and that. And so to see them get great contracts, to see them be so much more emotionally stable because I've helped them find the mental health resources that they need, it's, it's hugely gratifying to me. And to see them be better, healthier humans. Yes. Right. Humans. Healthier humans first. If you're a better dancer, great. Fantastic. That's a bonus, but healthier humans first. (laughs) And you were also mentioning before that you have a list of resources ready to go in your area, which I also have a list of resources. Mm -hmm. So why do you think it's important for dancers to see dance specific professionals? Um, I think it's preferable I don't think it's required, but I think it's preferable because they already know the lingo and the shorthand, right? So it's easier for for them to buy into what's going on with you and what's going on with your life. Mm -hmm. Um, I've been to doctors where I say, it really hurts when when I lift my leg up behind me and they're like, well, just don't lift your leg up, right? Right? Super helpful. Thank you. So, So finding doctors who understand what you're trying to do. And when you say, I have to dance this week, they won't go, well, you know, your ankle's spraining, so you shouldn't. They'll go, okay, it's a grade one, so 
if we do this, this, and this, you can probably do the show. If this happens, then this, and they can kind of lay out the scenarios for you. And they're much more understanding about what you're trying to do and what it's going to take to get you back as well. So hopefully they're not going to put you in a boot for six weeks and then say, okay, go back into dance class. Now they'll say, now I'm writing a prescription for PT to get you back to where you can dance. So I think it's important to find people like that. If you can't find a dance professional, um, then try to find a sports professional because dance medicine, um, uh, my friend Elizabeth said this dance medicine is just sports medicine in a different country. Exactly. And it's just, it's learning the new, it's learning a new language. It's learning new traditions and, and, and mores, but it's basically the same thing. Yeah. Um, and if you can't find that, find somebody with an open mind who is willing to listen and who is willing to hear from you and yeah. to, to try to buy in and, and to dig with you. And then you mentioned that you're oftentimes the front line in your mm -hmm. job, right? So mm -hmm. have you ever had challenges with parents or how do you kind of navigate if a parent is a little bit resistant sometimes to maybe like the protocols or maybe the advice that you're giving the dancers or maybe if their teachers aren't necessarily in agreement? That's really hard um, I because I do encounter that regularly. Um, I do work with a lot of pre-professionals, so they are under 18. Mm -hmm. Um, first and foremost, I require that the parents be there and not just drop their kid off and leave okay. for at least the first, you know, month or two so they can see what it's like. So they're not getting a report from their kid that sounds completely different. I always ask the parents permission to touch the child mm -hmm. and then make sure the parent is there to watch what kind of touch cueing I do with them. Um, but I also know that sometimes the parent being there can inhibit the child, the teenager from wanting to talk and from telling me the truth. Mm. The child may not be honest about how much something hurts. Right. If their parents, they're like, well, if it hurts, I'm going to pull you. If right. it hurts, you can't go tonight. Right. You know? so, yeah. so that can be difficult. And I find that having conversations with parents is just as important as with the teenager. Yes. So I will try to have conversations with the parent, knowing that the teenager is listening. Mm. And many times it will be sharing my stories about my life or sharing stories of other dancers and how those problems were solved and what sort of things came out of it. It's very helpful to make it applicable to them, yeah. right? Just handing them a study saying, well, study says you should, right. you should exercise as many hours as you are old per week for oh, the dance world. Like so your child's 12 and they're doing 30 hours a week. That's yeah. too much. They'll yeah. be like, ah, it's fine. <laughs> um, until it's not fine. Yeah. But if I say, hey, you know what? If they cut back a little bit, they're actually gonna perform better. Let's yeah. try that and see what happens. Yeah then they've got that buy-in. So I do get that from parents. I do get that from teachers. Um, teachers, I try to encourage the parents to be the advocate for the child yeah. and say, you have to stand up for your child because it's very awkward for them to have to stand up and say, hey, I'm not supposed to do that. I'm injured right now, you know, but it's a, it's a delicate balance trying to, um, trying to help them find that way forward with respect and also um, respect for themselves and what they need to do. And more isn't always better, right? Because you were kind of oh, touching it's on it's almost that never better. With, you know, because <laughs> some people, some people say towards cross training or conditioning in general, well, oh, I don't want to add any more to the dancer's plates. Mm -hmm. So do you have anything in regards to that? How would you kind of respond to that? Yeah, well, and I've had dance studios talk to me about that. You know, I, one of the things I do is go in and, and help dance studios kind of structure their season and yeah. figure out where to do more, where to do less 
where to try to fit in cross training. And if they're like, I just, we don't have any more time here. I'm like, well, does every dancer at your competition studio need to be in three trios and four quartets and do six solo? You know, if we can cut back a little bit, then maybe we have room for them to do other stuff or maybe they don't need to do other stuff. So when I'm planning with a dancer and their parent for the season, right away, the first thing I do, which sounds counterintuitive is say, what of this stuff can you cut if you need to? Mm. Monday night is their rehearsal. Okay, Tuesday night, it's just tap class. Great, you don't do any tap shows. If you've got a big final coming up or if you have an injury, we know Tuesday night's the night then you can skip, Mm. right? And just finding those pressure valves um, in the schedule ahead of time. Mm. So they know here's the places I can cut back if I have to. I'm not saying always cut Tuesday night, you know, but right. helping them find the places where they can cut back if they have to. For me, hopefully after they worked with me at least one season, they stop saying yes to everything right. um, and start to find I don't need to do as much. And my friend, Jason Harrison, who is also uh, somebody, you're right, he's a fantastic yeah. strength and conditioning coach. Yeah. And he always makes the point that if this doesn't make you a better dancer, don't do it. (laughs) So don't do strength and conditioning just because people say do strength and conditioning. If it's not making you better, if it's making you more tired, don't do it. So everything outside of the dance class should be in service to making you a healthier dancer. So you should be cross-training. But that cross training shouldn't just be blind, scattered, right. whatever is cool random. on Instagram right mm-hmm. now, right? right? It shouldn't be three hours a day because that's what people say. No. Um, and you probably shouldn't be doing as much dance if you're having tr- troubles finding that time to do um, cross training. Yeah, because I think that's probably the biggest pushback that I hear in general with cross training is just a lack of time. But again, mm-hmm. I think that things could be solved from the beginning, you know, before their year even begins. I think right. that's a great time. Because yeah. otherwise, it, I don't think we would really hear that excuse. Right. We yeah. wouldn't. And and I know a few companies are starting to build in. One of my dancers is dancing for a company that has built in a paid preseason. So they are being paid to go back and get in shape. They're getting physical therapy. They're getting cross training. They're getting easy dance classes. Um, and preseason is so smart. Mm. And having something like that built into the schedule means you'll have further, fewer workman's comp charges. Mm and claims down the line, right? So people are starting to see that longevity, but it takes time. Yeah, and again, the the periodization that Jennifer is mentioning that she was saying with the preseason stuff, again, that's another example how we're taking traditional dance pedagogy and we're seamlessly blending more modern scientific principles, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, and even periodizing nutrition now is also a thing. Absolutely, and I try to get them hooked up. I have a few nutritionists I work with, and I try to get them connected with them and talking about it before that's an issue, right? Mm-hmm. So we plan it out just like exercise before it's an issue. Mm-hmm. Awesome. And again, would you just give us one piece of wisdom that you've learned from this experience of becoming a movement professional? Um, I would say my biggest piece of wisdom is surround yourself with people who are smarter than you. Oh, I love that. I learn so much from my friends mm-hmm. and I am so lucky to have friends like you that are as smart as you are. And my Instagram feed is filled only with people who inspire me. I do so. not follow people just to follow them. Nope. Um, and I make sure that what I see on there is inspiring and accurate nope. and written by people who really know what they're talking about in that field that they're talking about. So surround yourself with really smart and 
interesting people in the fields that you want to be in. You will learn so much and you will just blossom. Yeah. And I think, you know, that kind of goes for dancers too. I think it's important Mm -hmm. for them to note who they're following on social media and how they feel when they're scrolling through their feed. Like you were saying, you should only feel good, happy thoughts from what you're seeing. Yeah. You should feel encouraged, inspired. You shouldn't feel, oh my gosh, I'm never going to be that good. Oh, I look terrible. There's no point in posting because I don't look like that. Right. None of that. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for today's conversation. I really enjoyed it. Absolutely. <laughs> thanks so much for having me on here. Yes. And thanks for doing the podcast. You're doing such a great job bringing all this information to dancers and dance studios and companies. Thank you so much. All right. It's time to wrap up today's wonderful episode with Jennifer Milner, who is a movement specialist. So first, she told us about her journey in becoming a professional dancer and also a Broadway dancer. And then she had a career-ending injury, which actually led her into taking Pilates. And this is when she really started to learn more about her body, all of its inner parts, and what the imbalances were so that she could really start to work to improve those imbalances. When we talked about progressing the field of dance science, she touched on that she's trying to really question a lot of the traditional ballet and dance pedagogical practices and really try to seamlessly blend a lot of the more modern scientific principles, such as periodization. One of the things that she wished she knew as a young dancer is that it's okay to be messy, and it's okay for your movements not to look great, right? Because we can't just completely ignore them. And this is a really good thing that we talked about today is something that's common in ballet is that, you know, the fear of making mistakes or the fear of the step not looking good, right? But if we ignore it, then you know, you're know you really kind of taking yourself down a dark path of actually causing more imbalance in your sides from left to right. Again, we talked about how we can access her amazing resources directly on her website, and she also posts great posts on Instagram. She also gave great wisdom to our audience today. One of the things that she said is not letting fear get in our way because you are unique. Nobody can do movements like you can do the movements. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for joining me today on this wonderful episode of the Dance Science Podcast. These conversations really, really, really light me up, and they've really been a great way for me to connect with amazing dance medicine professionals from all over the world. So I thank you very, very much for being here with me today and Jennifer on this amazing episode. If you really enjoyed today's episode, please feel free to leave a review You can also rate the episode and you can also send me a direct message right on Instagram. Thank you for being here with me today and I look forward to seeing you in my next episode.